For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord sets his love on you and shows you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, a faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Thus ends the reading of today's word. Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone here in person and those who are watching online this morning. We're continuing in our series, misquoted, explaining the Bible's most misused uh, verses. So uh, today's a big one. Our uh, sermon this morning is maybe the most misused uh, of all of the misused verses and, uh, or statements from Scripture, and that's God is love. Just take a moment and think about the different ways you have heard this statement used, some legitimately, often illegitimately. Much of the confusion has to do with the unclear definition of the word love in our culture today. A quick search of the word love brings back definitions like this. Love is an intense feeling of deep affection. You might say the new parents are in love with their new baby. Another definition of love is a feeling of deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone. You might say, she fell in love with her high school sweetheart. Or, love can be a great interest and pleasure in something. He loves basketball. That's true, my son and it's a very sentimental way to talk about love. Not that sentimental expressions of love are important, but they have come to almost entirely dominate the discussion of what love is. And this is important for us when we are thinking about the statement, God is love. This sort of popular or pop psychology concept of love is consistent with the psychologist Robert Sternberg's triangular theory of love. You see the picture above. The three points of the triangle are intimacy, passion, and commitment. And according to Sternberg, you have to have all three present to really have love. And it's a fine definition, but it's almost entirely limited to romance and sentimentality between a couple. And of course, when you define love in such limited terms or such a limited context, you leave very little room for more complex 
definitions of love, especially when we're trying to define the love of God, what it means to say that God is love. A popular trope right now is this one, love is love. It's become the, the clarion call of the LGBT community, and it's their way of saying, look, it doesn't matter if it's a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a woman or a woman, or a transgender man and a transgender woman. Love is love, so what's the difference? Let people love who they want to love. After all, God is love. And by love, we mean unqualified affirmation, approval, and acceptance. No judgment, no criticism, no pushback, no disapproval of any kind. And so this is what people mean today when they say God is love. This is what they're thinking about. This is the air we breathe as a culture right now. It doesn't matter if you're 89 or 9 years old. This is the oxygen in the air of our culture right now. Of all the phrases, though, and statements taken from the Bible and adopted into the culture, there is none that have become, I'm sad to say, more vacuous and meaningless than the phrase, God is love. It's a platitude with zero net relevance to our society. It's tantamount to saying this, if there is some celestial grandfather in the sky, in the cosmos, he or it is nice. Just keep on doing whatever it is you are doing because, well, God's love. There's not much to think about, not much to ponder, not much to change, not much self-reflection involved because God's love. At least that's how the culture interprets it. The consideration of whether we're actually deserving of this love never even enters the mind. Because, well, of course he loves us. Why wouldn't he? Of course we're deserving of this love. Why wouldn't we be? That's the sentiment. Theologian Tony Lane says this sentimental liberal concept of love, the love of God proclaimed in many Western churches churches in the Western world may appear attractive, but it's not in the last resort credible. In the early church, they had a similar problem with a fellow named Marcion who was trying to canonize the scriptures. He's trying to put together an early version of the Bible in the second century, and he rejected the entire Old Testament on account that it didn't square with his vision of the love of God. God could not be a judge who punishes evil or meets out justice to the wicked. That certainly was not the God he thought he saw expressed through Jesus. And so he rejected that God in its entirety and completely wiped the slate clean of the Old Testament altogether. Fortunately, there was people defending the truth, an early Christian author named Tertullian in the 3rd century, who writes this. In critique, a better God apparently has been discovered, one who is neither offended nor angry nor inflicts punishment. 
who has no fire warming up in hell and no outer darkness wherein there is shuddering and gnashing of teeth. He is merely kind. Of course he forbids you to sin, but only writing. And herein lies the challenge of our modern world. We would rather have a God of our own making. One who never challenges us, who never reproves us, never judges us, never rebukes us, than the God who actually is. But that conception of love, that conception of the love of God is vapid. It's empty, and it reduces the statement God is love to a mere platitude. And the biblical conception of love is far richer than that. It is far more complex and meaningful than some celestial grandfather in the sky who just wants to pass out candy to all the little kids walking by. God is far more complex than that. The idea of the love of God is far richer than these sentimental versions that dominate our culture. In fact, I suspect that the more this kind of grandfather-in-the-sky depiction of God's love, the more that has grown in our culture, our culture has probably become more secular, not less. The statement, this sort of unqualified statement that God is love, has not made people more mindful and contemplative about what it means to live in God's universe. It's made them less. Because there is nothing to think about, nothing to ponder, nothing to be convicted about except this mandate. Be nice. Or be kind. In fact, that actually is one of our culture's maxims right now. Be kind. Kindness is everything. And kindness is important, isn't it? But to reduce the love of God just to that statement makes the God of Scripture irrelevant. We should be kind, but if that's a summary of the love of God, as if to say everything in the Bible really just wants to tell you, just be nice or be kind, it's largely irrelevant. It makes the God of Scripture largely irrelevant. I can see now some Christian with a glazed-over look on their face telling their atheist neighbor as they're pulling the trash cans out, God is love. And their critically thinking atheist neighbor saying, yes. It is never engaging, never challenging, never bold. It doesn't have to be. It, it, it simply reduces the entire mandate of our faith just to a tiny little statement. Never brave, never bold. Never challenging, never reproving, never engaging. Stanley Harawas famously wrote, Jesus said, love your enemies, but the church took that to mean be nice. We are now so nice, we no longer make enemies, but truth has enemies. We've become like Flanders from The Simpsons. Sweet, but pathetic. Well, that's my critique of the culture's use of the phrase God is love. Are you ready for some context? Because that's what it's lacking. 
The culture's version of God is love is lacking the biblical context. Now, the idea that God is love is all throughout Scripture, but I just want to focus on a statement from the New Testament here in 1 John 4, 15 and 16. This is what the Apostle John, who was also Jesus' younger cousin, and the latest surviving of all the apostles who lived the longest, and who writes a generation later these words. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Far from some nebulous concept, it's Jesus, according to Scripture, who reveals God's love. The love of God is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. And what's so important about this statement is if you read the larger context of John's words, it takes place in chapter 4, and he's having a discussion about discerning the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It says every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, but from the Antichrist. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is the spirit of Antichrist. And I just want to say this. The love of God is indiscernible without Jesus. Does that mean that people who don't believe in Jesus or confess Jesus as Lord can't sort of, you know, grope at the edges of God's love and feel and experience some semblance of God's love? Yes, they can. They can when they wake up in the morning, they see the beautiful sun shining. And they go to bed at night and they see the moon and the stars in the sky, the Amazon rainforest, the beauty of parks. You know, when we look in each other's faces, absolutely. But the essence of that statement, God is love, the essence of the love of God cannot be discerned. This is what John is saying, apart from Jesus. Now, of the different kinds of words available to the Apostle John in the ancient world in the, in the first century, romantic love, eros, brotherly love, phila, family love, storge, the Greek word he uses is the word agape, and most of you know that word, don't you? It's not just the word in the New Testament used for God's love. It is the word that the New Testament writers use more than any other word to communicate love in general. The love that a husband even has for his wife, you'd think he would use the word eros, romantic love, or we get the word erotic, but he doesn't. He uses, they use the word agape, because the Christian conception of love follows God's own expression of love. And God's expression of love, according to C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, is what he calls gift love. Your King James Bible might interpret it the word charity. Right? These three abide, faith, hope, and charity. It's the word agape, love. But C.S. Lewis calls it gift love. Agape is gift love. It is the kind of love that gives to others, that sacrifices for the welfare and sake of other people. 
It is not merely a feeling. This is another point of dissonance with our culture that thinks that love is just a feeling. There may be some actions that follow, but really it's what you feel. It's about what you feel, primarily. And the biblical concept of agape, God's own love, is love that is action. God's love is grounded in action. If that weren't the case, we would expect the entire Bible to talk about all the different ways that God feels about us. And it does talk about that. God has affection for his people. So by way of anal you know, analogy, God doesn't have a heart like we have that beats, it's an organ. But the Bible talks about the very heart of God feeling affection for his people. He does. But instead, the Bible describes God's actions in history. What God has done as an outflow, an expression of his love. It's about God's actions. And that's instructive for each one of us because we have to also understand that your heart can be deceiving. Your heart can deceive you. Your heart can tell you you feel something different than what you feel or what you know to be true. In fact, at some point and on some level, your feelings may not even line up. Love is about the choices you make to seek the well-being of others. It is gift love. It is the kind of love that does for others without regard to being repaid or to receiving back. Now that may sound generic, but it's the essence of the gospel. And this is what the world around us doesn't get about the love of God. That God's gift love, his love, his self-giving nature, self-sacrificing nature is grounded in the cross. The love of God cannot be understood apart from Jesus. The love of God cannot be understood apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when John says, God is love... He's thinking about the fact that God saw us in our helplessness, in our helpless state, in our inability to save ourselves. And he sees your inability to save yourself. He saw your inability to purchase redemption, to repay him for his act of rescue on the cross. God sees all of these things. He sees what we cannot give back, and he gives anyway. Gift love. C.S. Lewis calls it. Agape is gift love. The love of God, the kind of love that God has, is not unqualified affirmation, acceptance, and approval. It is gift love. It is self-sacrificing love. So that's number one. That is the first takeaway for you when you think about, well, what is the love of God? It is a self-sacrificing love. It is agape. It is gift love. It is charity. It sees the need of another and sacrifices to supply that need. Number two, the love of God is important for us to understand is also vulnerable. We don't like to think of God this way, as vulnerable. But the very definition of love the very essence of love implies vulnerability, doesn't it? I mean, you know for yourself, the people you love, have they not hurt you at times? 
Tell me one person that you love who has not at one time or another hurt you. And tell me that it wasn't hard at some point to forgive them and to continue loving them for that person. And when it gets really hard is when that person continues to hurt you. The decision you have to make to keep loving that person because the essence of love implies vulnerability to pain. The statement from John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son is so magnificent, it's so mind-blowing because it describes a love that is costly to the lover. And we might ask this question, what meaning can there be in a love that isn't costly to the one loving? I mean, is it much of a statement at all? To say that God is love if there, God pays no price for that love. Because what happens in our minds when we think about the idea that God is love or the idea of love is that love costs. Doesn't it? And some of you here today have had your hearts broken by people you love. Sometimes it's a spouse. Sometimes it's your children. A sibling close friend because that's what love is and the only way to block yourself off from that pain is to cease to be loving is to cease to love there's no two uh, there's no way around it so why should we think that god doesn't feel pain and hurt related to his love you know the early church fathers formulated a doctrine called the impassibility of god and i don't want to bore you with all that stuff but Essentially, it was the longing to say, and the desire to defend God from the sort of emotional whims that we experience. And they deserve our understanding for that. But if by the impassibility of God, they mean that God cannot feel pain and suffering, then it is entirely wrong. Because that is exactly the very notion of the love of God in giving his son Jesus is the pain and suffering involved in offering up his one and only son. I mean, that's what the story of Abraham is all about in Genesis 22. And you don't have to be a genius when you read that story to feel the angst, the pain of Abraham taking his son up to the mount to offer him as a sacrifice. Not for a moment does anyone with a human heart think to themselves, oh, it was no big deal to him. He just thought he would offer his son Isaac, sacrifice him, and go on about his way. No, we know inherently this is one of the most gut-wrenching stories in all of Scripture, and for good reason. So that by the time we read the statement that God gave his only son, we know what it means. We know the power of it. We know the pain of it. Because he loved. The father loved the son. God's love is vulnerable to pain. If love is self-giving, then it is inevitably vulnerable to pain since it exposes itself to the possibility of rejection and insult. It hurts God that his creatures whom he loves so much rebel against him. In fact, in fact, the wrath of God is because of the love of God. You're thinking, what? How's that? Come again? 
The very wrath and anger of God at humans for sin is because he loves them. Because we are his creatures who were created for more. You say, oh no, the wrath of God, the love of God, totally incompatible ideas. What? How do you figure? When my children do things that are harmful, well, they're grown now. I mean, I still weigh in a little bit. But when they were younger and they did things that were directly harmful for them, I didn't say, dad is love. Get out of the street. You're going to get hit, right, by momentary wrath. And they cried, and they did not understand why I was angry or yelling, but I wanted to save their life. And so the wrath of God flows from the love of God. God is angry because, he's angry at sin because he loves his creatures. If God wasn't angry or wrathful against sin, it would stand to reason that he was indifferent. That would be a sign of his indifference. His cold indifference and lack of love. But the wrath of God flows out of a God who is love. Who is angry at sin. And the harm and violence it does to his creatures who he's made in his own image. I hope that makes sense. The love of God is pained also. Not just by our sin, but by our suffering. The love of God is pained by human suffering. Much of it caused by humanity itself. But God's love sees us and reaches out to us. In fact, the answer to the age-old question, if God is loving, what has he done to alleviate our suffering? You've heard that question. Maybe you've thought that question. Is God really loving? Does God really love? Doesn't he see what I'm going through? Doesn't he see what humanity goes through? question has to be answered with this. God is loving, and God sees our suffering corporately as a race, and sent Jesus, who died for sin, which causes all suffering, by the way. Suffering entered the world through sin. And so God's answer to suffering is to get at the root cause of it by overcoming sin in the work and person of his son Jesus, and he promises the resurrection to all who follow him and believe in him. And one day, all suffering will be eradicated because of the love of God, but for now, God, through the work of Jesus on the cross, is getting at the root cause of our suffering, all because he loves us. The Apostle Paul put it this way, but God Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the answer to the problems in the world. Christ died for us. And also 1 John 4.9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this naturally leads John to this conclusion. This is the ethical implications for you and I. This is the takeaway for every one of us now that we've sort of wrestled this true meaning of the love of God. What it means that God is love. This is what he says. Beloved, 
Beloved ones, in other words, you who are loved by God. That's how God has loved us. And we ought to show love for one another. And yes, it's true that that is generically true about everyone, but primarily, and I've done some study here and I've consulted some scholars on this, and I feel confident to say that who John primarily has in mind is do we show love towards unbelievers and outsiders? Yeah, absolutely. But our primary objective and obligation and duty is that because we receive the love of God, the people we ought to first show the love toward the most are fellow believers in Christ. Other people who belong to the family of God. And it's an important statement because in the first century, it was not a settled matter that all of those who believed in Jesus were united because you had Gentile believers and Jewish believers who were divided by race, race and ethnicity and cultural practices. And that's a good word for us today, isn't it? There are believers on the other side of the aisle who are separated from us by race and culture and practices. Some of them live in our own city. Some of them are in different parts of the world. And so the statement here is, beloved, one's loved by God. If that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. This is the sign, isn't it, of our conversion. This is the sign of our true identity. This is the sign that the world is really watching for. The love we have one for another. The love we ought to have one for another. Now, what are the net implications of this for us in our daily lives? Well, it means you have to get uncomfortable. It means you have to move towards other people. And in our culture, I've said this before, we are private people. I ran into, you know, I moved to a new area of town, saw someone at the grocery store. Their daughter had a Humboldt State University. The, the, the parents had a Humboldt State University sweatshirt on. Their daughter's in California. I said, I'm in California. We started talking. I said, I was a pastor. I invited them to church. They were Catholic, but they were interested. And they said, You're, what do you think of people here in the Midwest? And I said, you know, you guys are really polite. I said, but very private. And they both looked at me kind of like, really? And I said, yes. I said, uh, I have found, uh, it's been my experience that people here in the Midwest are polite. They are nice, but they are rel relationally guarded. And that may not be true about everybody in the Midwest, but it's certainly true, at least to a context that I have found myself in. Now, that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but it means the challenge for us to enact the love of God is to constantly move past those barriers of privacy, and safety and guardedness. That's what it means for you to embody the love of God. Is to constantly be pushing past your comfort level to drive home after work, open up that garage door, shut that garage door, and not come back out again until trash morning and you wave. To know your neighbors, to love people, to love the church, to get to know your neighbors in church. To invite people over even though you don't feel like well, your house is presentable. Or whatever the case may be. Invite people out. To push past your natural comfort level of whether it be introversion or privacy or whatever the case may be. Nothing wrong with introverts. We have deep distinctness with introverts. Praise God for them. I'm just saying. The cross of Christ, John wants us to see, is the apex of God's love. And is the template 
of our love toward others, gift love, the kind of love that sacrifices maybe our natural inclinations and proclivities to move towards others in charity and grace and mercy. So circling up with our sort of opening salvo, is our society wrong for liking and embracing the idea or wanting to co-opt the idea of the love of God, the statement God is love? No, they're not wrong. Something in all of us, I think, resonates with the idea that if there is one sovereign creator and power over the cosmos, that that being is a being of love. That should resonate with people. But the point of this context in John's letter is this. This is the takeaway for me. Only Christian faith can truly grapple with the love of God. There is an exclusive access that a person can only have that comes through Because it's only Christian faith that trusts that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for this world. Which means that the first purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and give it back out to others, creating, as it were, a kind of ecosystem of others-focused self that's the meaning behind the statement, God is love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are beloved on account of your son Jesus. We boast in the love that you have shown us, not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. That's why we boast in it. We pray that you would correct us from every wayward understanding of the love of God and hold in balance, uniting together both your love and your wrath, understanding that your wrath is a byproduct of your love, that you hate sin because of how it harms us. And when we choose to continue in sin, we make ourselves odds with you. But thank you for sending Jesus, who turned us, who were your enemies, into friends, all because of your love. We thank you for it. We, we, we praise you for it, O oh God, and we rejoice in it now. In Christ's name.